I want to wish uh, a happy Father's Day to you fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, and uh, surrogate father figures. We're thankful that you're here and for the impact that you have had on our lives. Have a great day. Normally on Father's Day, or often on Father's Day, I preach a Father's Day sermon. I'm not doing that today. It's rather important for me to point that out because uh, I'm preaching on being judgmental. It has nothing to do with Father's Day whatsoever. Uh, we just uh, counted up the weeks that we wanted for a series of sermons on either misunderstood texts or hot topics, and we needed this week to complete the series. So we value you fathers, but you're kicked to the curb for the sermon. Let's uh, go ahead and uh, ask God to guide our time. Father God, we rightly come to you as Father, the only perfect Father ever in existence. And yet many are very thankful for human fathers and grandfathers, great-grandfathers, or men who have acted in fatherly figures towards us. Father, we pray that you would bless those who have that title and allow us to lead well, guide well, model well for the next generations. And Father, as we look at your inspired, inerrant word, we ask that you would impart it to our hearts. As James tells us, we don't want to be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. And so take your ancient words that are wholly true and apply it to us. Transform us by the empowerment of your spirit as we seek to live out and embrace your words. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Many of you know the name John Wesley. John Wesley was a great preacher in the 1700s. He preached on both sides of the pond, predominantly in England, then came to the United States. In fact, he pastored in a church in Georgia in the Savannah area. Now, if you know anything about John Wesley, you know that he was an, a, an amazing preacher who preached all over, often multiple sermons every day, going from place to place on horse. You also know that he was a snappy dresser. I can relate. And uh, he didn't always have the coolest, calmest response to what was said to him. One particular day after he was done preaching, a woman approached him and said, uh, Pastor John, can I give you a bit of criticism? That's exactly what every preacher wants after every sermon. But John very graciously said, yes, what would you like to say? And on this particular day, he was dressed in a jacket and had a bow tie with some really nice little flowing uh, ribbons, and she took out her scissors, and she chopped off the ribbons. And she said, uh, a man of God shouldn't wear something so ostentatious. 
Well, everyone expected a little bit of fireworks, and uh, John remained calm, and he said, Ma'am, can I give you a little bit of criticism? What can she say? So she said yes, and he said, can I borrow your scissors? He said, ma'am, stick out your tongue. Oh, for the good old days of preaching. (laughs) But what he was really saying is that we, she, you, I need to figure out the difference between what matters and what's a preference. What is bedrock orthodoxy, right thinking, and orthopraxy, right living, and what is a secondary issue, or what is a personal preference issue, have convictions in our heart in all three, but only hold tightly the first orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Know the difference. That's really what Matthew 7, 1 to 5 is about. It's about having a gracious attitude, an attitude of kindness and mercy, rather than being censorious, angry, mean-spirited, argumentative, wanting and demanding one's way, not only in orthodox and orthopraxic issues, but also in issues of preference. As I thought about today's text, I thought about an event that took place in 1842. It took place in Springfield. There the Springfield Journal, a newspaper used to publish letters to the editor. And on this particular day, they would publish letters that sometimes were signed and sometimes anonymous. And at this particular time, there was a lawyer who loved to write scathing letters to the editor, and he or she would not sign one's name. And this person did it over and over again, but one time wrote a letter to the editor to James Shield, and perhaps put too much information in it because James Shield figured out who wrote the letter. And James Shield approached it, it happened to be a man, a lawyer, and he challenged him to a duel, a fight to the death. And this doesn't really play in this era, but in those days, apparently you had to give up your man card if you turned it down. And so this lawyer, who was not a warrior, needed to agree to fight, and because he was the one challenged, he got to pick the weapons. So he chose swords, hoping that his long arms would help him. The day was chosen about two weeks from that moment, and he hired a West Point cadet to teach him how to duel that he might survive the sword fight. The day of the sword fight came, and he met James Shields out on a sandbar in the Mississippi. And just before they were about to duel to the death, their designated seconds talked some sense into both men. They put down the arms, and the lawyer vowed to learn a lesson from the event. And he did. Fast forward to the Civil War. Fast forward to an event in his own home where his wife said, 
something about a political opponent. And Abe Lincoln responded by saying, we don't talk about people that way. Apparently, he had learned a lesson, a lesson that impacted his life. He had learned to be less censorious, less argumentative, less mean-spirited, and the like. And I think that's exactly the lesson that God has for us in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. Let's listen to God's word. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now the text begins with Matthew 7, 1. And it's one of those verses that lots of people in society know. And interesting, perhaps uh, a little bit curious, we know it in the King James. Judge not lest you be judged. Now like many of you, I read a lot of news I read it from many different sources, and it's my non-scientific observation that if a politician or activist or public speaker in some way quotes scripture, there's about a 50% chance that the verse that is cited is Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged. And if there's a second verse added, it's 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And this is how I observe it often in the newspapers. First, I'm thankful that they quote Scripture. But second, I'm a bit sad that I think they misquote and misapply the text. The way I observe it is this. God is love, and He is. And because God is love, He doesn't make any moral or ethical choices or place any moral or ethical boundaries on humanity because God is love. As if being loving means that we don't place moral or ethical choices on another, which is absolute nonsense for all 7 billion people on the planet. You and I, no matter what our political persuasion, what our socioeconomic background where we come from, it doesn't matter. All of us, all 7 billion people on the planet, go through life making moral and ethical choices, hundreds of them every single day. We may make different ones, but we are making them. You cannot live without making such choices. But as I read, God is love, therefore you cannot make moral or ethical choices. Therefore, those who claim God as their own need to imitate God. And God says, judge not lest you be judged, which is a way of saying nobody has the right to make a moral or ethical choice that impacts or impugns on anyone else. Again, that's nonsense. That's nonsense because no one can live that way 
no matter what persuasion one comes from, it is impossible to live without making moral or ethical choices that impugn on others. You just can't survive. And yet that's the way the reasoning often goes. Now we need to know that the Bible would say quite other lies. First, I think that judge not lest ye should judge is about attitude. It's not about the moral or ethical choice. It's about the attitude in which you and I express and live out those choices. That's what the text is talking about. Judgment here, crino, is being used to refer to our attitude. We are to live with an attitude of grace, with an attitude of kindness, not with a mean-spirited, censorous, arrogant, haughty, holier-than-thou attitude. But that does not mitigate the fact that we need to make moral and ethical choices and then express them when appropriate in a gracious way. In fact, we don't even need to leave the Sermon on the Mount. We don't even need to leave Matthew 7 to see that this is a requirement. Listen to what Jesus writes in verses 15 and 16. He says, beware of false prophets. Beware is observe, isn't it? Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them. You will evaluate them. You will identify them by their fruits. You will identify false teachers based on how they teach, how they live. That requires you and I to make moral and ethical choices. But it does not require us, and in fact, it would be wrong to then be mean-spirited, arrogant, and holier-than-thou towards others. But what is right is that when we listen to music and we try and evaluate, is it honoring to God or not, we listen to the words and we look at the lifestyle of the musician. When we read a book, we evaluate whether it's a book that God would have us read or not. When you listen to me preach today, you ought to be like the Bereans in Acts 17 who were more noble than others because they listened to Paul and then they went home and evaluated what he said against the word of God. And if what Paul said is true, then they applied that to their life. If what Paul said is not true, they did not. That's how you and I ought to interact. We need to make moral and ethical choices. We may even need to confront what is immoral and unethical, but attitude matters. Attitude matters a lot. This is not only true of teachers, it's true of the gospel itself. Listen to what Paul wrote in Galatians 1, 8 and 9. He said, but even if we or an angel from heaven were to come to you and proclaim a gospel other than that which we preach, let him be anathema. And again, I say it, if an angel from heaven were to come to you and preach something other than what he preached, let him be anathema. So the gospel, the good news, the euangelion is salvation by faith in Christ alone. It's what Paul wrote when he said, for our sake... He, the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, 
to be covered with sin, to become sin for us, that through him, through faith in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin was imputed to Christ. And when we place our faith in Christ alone, then his righteousness is imputed to us. His shed blood is the atonement, the payment of our sin. And we pass from death into life. And we are given eternal life in Christ alone. And Paul says, if someone preaches a gospel other than that, let him be anathema. If someone says that salvation is by works, we say no. Or by faith in another God, no. Or all people get to heaven, no. We have the right, the obligation to stand on the gospel. But we do so not only with conviction, because it's orthodox, and not only because we've made right moral and ethical evaluations, but then our attitude matters as we interact with others, and we do so in a loving way, in a gracious way, but in a non-compromising way, in the hope and prayer sincerely to allow them to see the gospel and embrace Christ as well. That's what God expects. But it's not only true of teachers or the gospel, it's true of how you and I interact with one another. So we read in Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if any of you is caught in a transgression, let ye who is spiritual, that is someone who's mature in Christ, confront with humility and gentleness, looking to oneself, lest ye too fall into sin. In other words, we are our brother, we are our sister's keeper, we do need to interact with one another, according to 3 and 5 in Matthew 7, we want to do so being quite cognizant of the fact that we have planks in our own eyes as we try and help somebody remove a speck in their eye. We don't want to be hypocritical, acting like we have it all together and someone else does not, but with a spirit of gentleness and humility, we are to come to one another and spur one another on in love and good deeds. That's exactly what the so-called discipline passage of Matthew 18 is talking about. Verse 15 puts it this way, if your brother sins against you, go and beat him up. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Matthew 7, verse 1, is not telling us to avoid moral or ethical decisions. Walking through life, we make them all the time. It's not even telling us not to confront immorality or unethical behavior. We must. It's saying that the attitude matters. It's more than just right thinking and right action. It's right attitude. And if we don't get the attitude right, we will have lost a great deal. And it's in all of life. It's in all areas. There are so many areas that Bible-centered, God-honoring, Christ-honoring Christians need to stand firm on. We call that orthodoxy, right thinking. There are so many areas where 
Our actions need to be right. That's orthopraxy, right actions, right attitude. But then, then there's an area where Bible-centered, God-honoring Christians might look at the same text and come to slightly divergent conclusions. They're not gospel-centered areas. They're not salvation areas. They tend not even to be orthopraxic areas, though there can be one, and I'll offer one in a moment. But they tend to be areas where just small little bits of time or element of change might be what one holds and the other holds slightly differently. And in those areas, be convicted in your mind, but hold it loosely and be gracious. And then there's a third category. That's our preferences. So not in this hour, but in the last hour, I preach in traditions, walk out, they put this little light on for me, saying, uh, end that sermon, brother, you got to get up on stage. And I walk in here and I preach again to a service somewhat like this one. I go from traditions where they're going to have a piano and one or two singers. And they're going to sing all hymns and from the hymn book. And I come in here and we got a number of musicians and the music is very different. And all of these brothers and sisters are honoring the Lord. It's preference. A preference might look like this. I'm convinced in my mind that my kids need to be schooled, fill in the blank, at home, online, in a private school, in a public school. I'm convinced that the right translation for me is, and you fill in the blank. We're an ESV family. No, we're KJV. We're, we're New King James. We're NIV. We're NASB. And as English speakers, how blessed are we with several thousand, maybe up to four and a half thousand people groups that don't have scripture yet, and we've got it all over the place. And we fight over it? Preferences. Or maybe it's around Halloween and hold your breath, the people next door trick or treat. And I saw some Christians at the mall and their kids were sitting on Santa's lap. Oh man. <laughs> Preferences. And we argue over such silliness. Such silliness. Well, let me offer a theological one that I think belongs in that second category. I am very committed to a pre-trib, pre-millennial point of view at the end times just like Jesus. I am. <laughs> but I've noticed that I have some friends that are of the mid-trib, even pre-wrath mid-trib version. And I got some friends that are post-tribs. And I've got a group in this church right now, I'm not going to tell you which side they're sitting on, they're amillennialists. And what I've observed is this. There are really godly people in all of those camps. All of them. 
In fact, if I'm really honest, though I am pre-trib, pre-millennial, I have more books written by all millennialists in my library than any of the other camps. Because they stand on inerrancy better than the other camps do. That's just true. It's sad, but it's true. All of those camps should stand on inerrancy equally, but they don't. We're talking about a timing mechanism. I'm just going to tell you the truth. I'm going to get to heaven before my mid-trib friends, and I'm going to pick a beautiful mansion. The post-tribbers, they're probably going to get outhouses because they're coming late to the show. And I don't know where the amillennialists are coming to the show, but they're going to be there too. And we're all looking at exactly the same text. And if we disagree on a little bit of timing mechanism, does that really mean that we break fellowship? It shouldn't. It can't. It's not a primary issue. It's a secondary. I'll be even more controversial. Betty Ann and I are teetotalers. I don't even think Jesus is in our camp this time. As I read John 2, he turned water to wine at Cana at Galilee. You can push back and say that wine is different than today. But then read Matthew 9, 14 to 17 where you have the parable of putting new wine in, uh, you're putting new wine in old wineskins. That requires a certain level of fermentation to burst those old wineskins, which is necessary to understand the parable. And it's actually an alcohol level about equal to our wine today. It's just the truth. What Jesus said is this. Wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler. Those who are led astray by them are unwise. That's what he said. If you are led astray by alcohol, you, I, we cannot have alcohol in our life. That's what he said. If we get tipsy, if we get buzzed, if we get drunk, we have crossed the line, and that's sin. But he actually didn't say you can't drink. We've chosen not to drink. You may have chosen that or you may have chosen a different route. doesn't matter. It's a secondary issue. And it won't divide, shouldn't divide fellowship. My third illustration, a little bit more preferential. My dear brother Dave over here, Dave Mahler, I don't understand it, but he has a jacket and a tie. Dave, if you will bring that tie over here, we can address this issue right now. Now, Dave is a sharp dresser, and he dresses that way out of conviction, and I'm a sharper dresser, and I dress this way, <laughs> I don't know where that came from, out of conviction. It doesn't really matter. Dave could be tough on me. He's not. Why? Because it's preferential. It's preferential. And when you, I, we need to examine our lives to figure out what is preferential. And in the areas of preference, we are convinced and convicted in our own hearts 
But we have no right to push that conviction on someone else. Where the Bible says something, we believe it. Orthodoxy, we live it. Orthopraxy. In those areas that are non-salvific, where really God-centered individuals might have slightly different versions and understandings, we may not even agree what those areas are. But in those areas, a little bit of grace and charity. And then in the preference area, be convinced in your heart, but be gracious to others who are convicted in another way. That's actually what Romans 14 teaches. Romans 14 and 15 is a long-gated exposition of Matthew 7, 1 to 5. That our attitudes matter. And if we don't think they matter, look at verse 2. Verse 2 of Matthew 7 is one of those verses that we just scoot on by, but it ought to put some real fear in our lives. For with the judgment, the judgmentalism, the krina, you pronounce you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. I think verse 2 ought to be titled the scales. Because that's what the word krina right here means, scales. And what it's saying is this. If I work through life and I make right ethical and moral choices, but I handle it in a judgmental, censorous, arrogant, mean-spirited way, the scales that I put people on with my censorous attitude is the scales that Jesus will put me on at the day of judgment. Now Romans 8.1 is clear, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you pass from death to life, if you've believed by faith in Christ and you've accepted his payment, his atonement for one sin, if you, I, have done that, then there is no condemnation. But remember, there's lots of other passages, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, or the one I'll cite, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Therefore, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and each one will receive what is done in the body, whether good, agathon, or bad. It's actually phalos, it means worthless. Christ followers will face a judgment not to determine destiny, that's determined by belief or rejection of Christ, but extra rewards that we could have, we will be judged by how we have lived out this life. And according to Matthew 7, 2, part of that judgment will be the scales in which we passed judgment, the attitudes in which we lived out towards others. And I don't know about you, but I'm hoping to step on scales of grace and mercy and forgiveness because this boy needs it. But if those are the scales I want to step on, then they've got to be the scales that I demonstrate towards others. Let me offer two biblical examples. I think of the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, we meet a man named Haman, who is a vile man. He wants to initiate a pogrom against all the Jews 
Because he, along with the rest of the nation, is ignorant to the fact that the queen, Esther, is a Jewess. So Haman wants to murder the Jews, not realizing that that would include his queen. He particularly wants to make an example of a Jew named Mordecai. He hates him, who again, nobody knows it, is Esther's uncle. So Haman builds a gallow. He'll murder all the Jews, but he wants to hang one in particular. He wants to hang Mordecai from the gallows. And when it becomes clear that he's about to try and murder all Jews, including the queen, he ends up losing his life. And how did he lose it? On the scales of the gallows. The scales that he tried to judge a people are the scales he lost his life. I think of Judges chapter 1. There's a man named Adani Zedek. And uh, Bezek, excuse me. Adani Bezek. And Adani Bezek is a king. We don't know a lot about him, but I'll take some guesses. I think he is a worshiper of Baal, the Canaanite god, because Bezek is the word that means lightning, and Baal is in charge of lightning. So I think he's named after Baal. He has an army of 10,000, and we learn in Judges 1 that he has defeated 70 rulers. And what he has done to the 70 is he has cut off their thumbs and cut off their big toes. Grisly. But strategic. If you cut off somebody's thumbs, they can't hold a weapon. If you cut off their toes, they can't maneuver. You have rendered them unable to fight. And then he's caught. And you know exactly what happened. His thumbs and his big toes were cut off. The scales that he evaluated 70 others on were the scales of which he was evaluated. And that's what the text says. If I am censorious and angry and mean-spirited towards others, if that is the scales in which I evaluate others, even if I make the right moral and ethical decision, if I handle it in a judgmental way... When I face the Lord, those are the scales that I'll be stepping on. And great will be the loss of eternal reward. No wonder verses 3 to 5 warn me on how to live. Let me read it. Why do you, Jeff, see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, When there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The text is not telling us that we're not our brother's keeper. Galatians 6.1 has already told us, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, with humility and with gentleness, looking to yourself, you are to confront. But this is the deal. We confront knowing that we have logs in our own eyes. It looks something like this. I've noticed something in your life, and before I go further, I want you to know that I got lots of issues. Jeff is a project, and maybe you you can pray for me and help me in some of my issues, but in order to spur you, for you to spur me on to love and good deeds, to, to be a brother 
like I should be, I'm inviting you to work on, on the logs in my eye and, and may I point out a speck in your eye as well and together we'll work holding each other accountable to take the next step in one's relationship with Jesus Christ. Or we could go to somebody and act like we have it all together and verse 5 says that we're a hypocrite, a play actor, someone who's not real, someone who's not genuine, someone who acts one way Sunday morning and quite different Sunday night. As I thought about a hypocrite, I thought of a, a young boy just before his teen years. He was going to the orthodontist, getting the dreaded braces. And he had a little sheet to fill out, name and address, ask a couple questions. One of the questions said hobbies. And he thought, you know what, i got to impress this orthodontist. So he wrote down bike riding, skateboarding, and flossing. I doubt it, but that's the way sometimes Christians act, like we're all flossed. We got it all together. And I think Matthew 7, 1 to 5 is saying we're all projects. We don't have it all together. We do have to make moral and ethical judgments. Sometimes we even have to confront immoral or unethical judgments around us. But we need to do it with grace. We need to do it without a mean spirit, a censorous attitude, because the scales that we judge others, the attitudes by which we judge others, those are the scales that the Lord will have us step on when he judges us. Let's pray. Father God, uh, as we look at a number of either misunderstood texts or hot-button issues, it could be really easy to be judgmental in a couple areas where we think we have squared rightly with the Word. Lord, where we have squared rightly with the Word, thank you for that grace. And thank you for the empowerment of your Spirit but Lord, help us not to be haughty or arrogant or prideful, not censorous or mean-spirited or holier than thou. Father, help us to instead have scales of grace and forgiveness, not ignoring sin, not watering down orthodoxy or orthopraxy, but having attitudes of graciousness. Give us that as a church, as families, as individuals. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.